Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have an episode for you on a hot topic in shoulder surgery, which is the evaluation and management of the painful reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. And we invited two experts to provide their insight. Both are from the land of reverse shoulder arthroplasty, also known as Florida. Um, and first we have Dr. Derek Cuff of Suncoast Orthopedics in Florida. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Greg, Peter, great to be here with you and Rachel. Uh, and second, we have Dr. Uh, Brad Schock, who is at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both for having us. All right, so let's start at the beginning with the history. So let's pretend you're in your clinic tomorrow morning. There's a patient on your schedule. It's from an outside provider. They have a painful reverse tosser arthroplasty. Derek, are there specific details in the history here that lead you towards understanding the cause? Yeah, Peter. So I'll usually start with is, you know, basically where is their pain when I'm taking their history? Um, I think you garner a lot from that. Um, anterior pain versus posterior pain versus lateral pain will sometimes lead me in different uh, directions. So, you know, a thorough history about, you know, their surgery, maybe if you can learn some indications of why it was done, how they went in their post-operative rehab, and then more importantly, where the location of their pain is from their history, I think is valuable. What about you, Brad? Do you think location of the pain is critical? Do you think timing of the pain? Are there any specific details you always look for here? Yeah, I think this is, like Derek said, this is a full kind of workup here. You need to take everything from the time of surgery where did the pain start immediately from right after the surgery and has never gone away? Is it pain that's been before the first surgery that never went away that might direct you to something, say, like the cervical spine? Um, timing of when it started, if it started after surgery, location, um, aggravating, alleviating factors, the normal things I think we all go through, but paying close attention to the timing as it relates to the surgery or any injuries thereafter, I think is important initially. Now, let me ask you, Brad, you know, traditionally in the workup of, you know, like a painful total hip, there's often this idea of startup pain. Like if the patient complained of pain when they first got up out of bed or from sitting in a chair that it was associated with a loose stem. Do you think that there's anything like, is there, is there, a, is there a corollary in the shoulder or no? I, I suppose I could imagine a scenario with some of the shorter stems that we're using now that tend to want to settle the ones that are using metaphyseal only fit. I suppose that could have a little bit of wear and wear, there's a little gap or perhaps with polyware where they start using it in the initial motion, perhaps take some of the slack out of the deltoid and create a clunk. Um, it's not something that I've necessarily seen, but I could imagine such a scenario. I think one of the more common things that I've seen are some of the reverses that have large humeral trays can sometimes impinge against the conjoint tendon. So start up necessarily internal rotation, and until that kind of cre creates a little loosening of the conjoint tendon, that can sometimes cause pain. Are there specific motions you've seen that with? Uh, in my experience, it's been a lot of times with maximal internal rotation. 
is where I've seen that most. I don't know if you've seen that as well, Darren. Yeah, so I think that ties into what I said about kind of the location. And so it's analogous, like you said, Peter, to, to the startup pain. There's certain movements with the reverse that I think that can target you in on what might be the problem. And so for me, it's more of a flexion internal rotation maneuver where you'll see if you have, like as you said, a, an on-lay device with a large tray, sometimes that can uh, abrade the posterior aspect of the conjoint tendon. I've seen some cases of that, and they'll have pain anterior right over the conjoint tendon. Um, sometimes the ingrowth surface uh, can abrade that uh, as well, depending on what your ingrowth surface is in the proximal portion of your metaphyseal tray. And then for me, also abduction-related pain. You know, a lot of times these patients will have an acromial fracture type issue or even a stress reaction there that they may be feeling. And in direct abduction, they'll point to the posterior lateral aspect of their shoulder as a location that where they've had pain in the past or or issues with their posterior lateral acromion. So um, somewhat analogous to startup pain, I think there's certain maneuvers that if it elicits pain in a certain location can kind of clue you in on why they might have a painful RSA. Let's move on to imaging. Let's say that you get on your plane radiographs and you see that the implants are well fixed, well positioned. You don't see a stress fracture. You're not too worried about what you can see on plane films. What is your next go-to imaging test? Derek, let's start with you. What are you going to next? So the next thing for me will be a CT scan, Rachel. And, um, you know, if they come in and their x-rays look normal, as I go through my differential, I try to get as much information as I can with maybe one round of testing um, instead of putting the patients through a battery of exams. So I found doing a CT scan to kind of look for anything that you may be missing in your x-rays, a stress reaction or a non-displaced stress fracture on the acromion, uh, coracoid fracture or non-union in the front. Um, and at the time of me sending them for a CAT scan, Rachel, I'll often also do a CT guided aspiration since they're going to be there for the CAT scan anyways to see if the interventional radiologist can get any fluid to be sent for a culture, obviously worrying about infection as a potential cause of pain as well. So CT scan with an aspiration with my next imaging modality. And yeah. when you get that, oh, go ahead, Brad. I was going to say, you know, and when you get the CT scan, oftentimes I think it's important to look on that if you have a good axillary film before to look for impingement and notching, but really posterior inferior, sometimes that hides when we get our typical grassy views. Um, it's important to kind of use the CT to look in that area um, initially. If you can't see, if you don't have a good axillary view in clinic, I know that some things I've struggled with at certain places I either trained or worked at, you don't always get the best views. And so I think, I think that's important to think about and a reason to pull the trigger on a CT scan. And do you, Brad, also get an aspiration at the time of that CT or do that yourself in the office? And then for both of you, are you sending in special requests when you get that aspiration to hold it for a few weeks? Are you getting serum labs? Um, are you jumping to the infection workup even if you have no clinical suspicion? So I think that I do not personally get aspirations on any of mine unless they have a large effusion if they have a large effusion in clinic that i can see i'll stick a needle in it but if they have no obvious effusion i'm not putting a needle into it due to the low yield that i've seen in, with cultures so that doesn't really change the needle for me i will get infection labs in the, the absence of any other obvious findings and then I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it i'll actually scope these as well if i have no other reason i'll do scopes for biopsy and culture Yes, yeah, so Rachel, as part of my painful total shoulder workup, I will. I'll get the CT scan with aspiration for pretty much all of them. Um, and I'll direct the radiologist to hold the culture for 14 days and the results are faxed to our office and checked 
I think basically on five day intervals through that 14 day window. And then, um, yes, I will send blood markers as well with a CBC, CRP and a, and an ESR for all of our patients as part of our workup. For either of you, is there any role for a CT spec or bone scan at any point? I typically do not order that Peter. No. I have not either based on what Dr. Cofield taught me when I was still at Mayo. No real role for that, I don't think. Let's pretend there's some notching on your CT scan. And and I, I think we can all agree notching is common with versatile arthroplasty. So how do you figure out how that plays a role in the patient's symptoms? Do you ignore that? Do you think it's a potential cause of pain? If so, what do you do about it? Brad, what are your thoughts? So I think you have to try to tease out what's causing the pain. Um, you can certainly have a bunch of poly debris that's created that creates a synovitis that can certainly cause generalized pain. But the ones that I've had more success revising are the ones that have impingement type pain. So somebody who's at max external rotation with their arm at their side, and that's the position that reproduces their pain which correlates with where their notching is occurring. I think that's reasonable to go in and revise with the goal of lateralizing them if I can and kind of preserve the base plate, preserve the stem as possible, revise as few components as I need to, to kind of alleviate the impingement and get rid of the pain. What are your thoughts, Derek? Have you had a similar situation that you've seen? Yeah, you know, I think it depends on the grade of notching, Peter. You know, I'll see patients with, you know, more medialized implants that have a grade one notch or even a grade two notch that I don't necessarily equate to them having the cause of their pain. Um, I certainly don't think it's a radiographic curiosity. I think it's real and we know long term it can affect their constant scores and, and their outcomes, maybe even a long term fashion. But I think it's something if it's in the short term, that would not for me personally push me to revise it. Now, if you have a grade three notch and you think the poly is impinging upon the screw and there's poly wear and, and issues with loosening your base plate, I think that changes the equation. So for more low grade notching, it's something that I will note, but not necessarily think that that's the true cause of a painful a pain that would lead me to indicate them for revision. If it's more of a high grade notch where you think there could be poly wear and debris and a, an, an aggressive synovitis is Brad said that maybe maybe push me more towards considering revision. I think it's important to give them a little run run in time too, because if they just barely are impinging, they may notch a little bit and then become stable. But if it's progressive notching, or again, it's becoming rather large, then I think it's reasonable to revise. Let's focus a little bit on the acromion. Are there any cases where you think there can be some sort of acromial stress reaction, even if the x-ray and potentially even the CT are normal or not showing much? And if so, do you treat that? Do you ignore that? Do you think that's not a possibility? Derek, let's start with you. I definitely think it's a possibility, Rachel. I know I've seen this in my clinic many times. And so I think sometimes with these acromial fractures, it depends on the time frame in which you're catching them. And the stress reaction, it's almost like this antecedent pain they'll have that I think sometimes precedes uh, a later acromial fracture that will become completed, a type two or even a type three. So, um, you know, if I have a patient in the office that's three months post-op that's complaining of some discomfort, it gets referred in three to four months post-op with, with discomfort in the postlateral acromion. Even if I don't see anything on the x-ray or even on a CT scan, if I had a clinical suspicion that I thought I was missing it on the x-ray and maybe it's a non-displaced type two, I have very little 
concerns about shutting them down for four weeks back in a shoulder mobilizer to let that area calm down and then and then restore range of motion after that. So I think the acromial stress reaction is real and it sometimes can often precede an acromial stress fracture. Brad, same experience in your practice. Do you find that you see this more often than you might think just based on otherwise normal imaging or is this less frequent? Oh, I think we certainly see it more than we see it on imaging because these stress reactions oftentimes aren't visible on either plane radiographs or CT. It's a clinical diagnosis where you put your finger directly on the acromion or the scapular spine. And if you can reproduce their pain purely by directly palpating the bone, then I'm just like Derek, I mobilize them for a month. And then I go ahead and actually schedule a CT scan a month from that point with the idea that if their pain goes away, they don't get the CT scan, but if they come to clinic and they're still painful there, they're heading right over for their CT scan. So it sounds like both of you are doing the same thing. You're both mobilizing for one month. Do you think there's any role during that period of time to do anything else? Like, should we be supplementing them with vitamin D? Should we be referring them to their primary care doctor to start some sort of bisphosphonate? What are your thoughts, Brad? Have you, have you done, have you thought about doing anything else in that situation? I think that's a good idea. I can't say I've personally thought of that, but that's that's probably a very reasonable thing to do. What are your thoughts, Derek? Have you have you done anything else? Have you, I mean, have you ever like do you immobilize them in an induction or do you ever do anything else to try and keep that acromion from breaking? Because I think we all know if the acromion breaks and displaces, it's a real challenge for the patient. Yeah, I mean, for me, Peter, I would just do a strict mobilization and full adduction, basically telling them they need to keep their elbow against their body. Uh, their elbow wrist and hand right in front in a neutral position, I'll let them use, but it definitely a five pound lifting restriction and basically trying to keep them in full uh, adduction. Um, I, you know, I've heard of other docs doing things like vitamin D and nasal calcitonin and, and these other things to try to potentially stimulate healing or, or minimize a risk of fracture there. I have not employed any of those techniques, but I do know of other neurosurgeons who have, who've tried that stuff. Let's talk about the other end of this spectrum. You know, the, I think some of us think the acromion is kind of maybe too tight. Have you seen any patients with maybe a subtle instability? Like maybe someone who's, there's not a full dislocation, but they say my shoulder clunks or it feels shifty or I don't trust it. Derek, are you seeing that? What are you doing about that? Yeah, yeah. and it's, I, I got this line from, from John Levy, a close friend of mine, also another shoulder surgeon here in Florida who has a high volume of reverse replacements. And he's told me, when your patient tells you he's dislocating or subluxating, believe them. And a lot of times you'll see them on your x-ray and it'll look perfect. And you'll say, yeah, I felt something come out. And they're, you know, nine weeks post-op and you just don't want to buy it. Kind of like, well, your x-ray looks great. Maybe you just felt some scar tissue or something in PT. But in my experience, if the patients get that subtle sense of instability, um, especially acutely, you know, within the first three to six months post-op, I think it's real. And, and there have been cases where initially I may have blown that off. And then two months later, they're in the ER with a frank dislocation. Um, so uh, some subtle instability, I think, can cause some pain. And it's definitely a red flag for me now, uh, further on in my career, when the patients tell me they're feeling some instability, that worries me that, that the shoulder may not be perfectly balanced in terms of the soft tissues and could be a cause of their pain or potential future frank instability. And are you immobilizing those patients the same way or are you saying we just need to watch it? I think I watch them a little bit closer and kind of maybe a little bit more close follow-up as they move through their early post-operative phases to see if that kind of stabilizes so maybe a few more office visits to see in that first special, especially that first six month window to see if that kind of subsides. And if they're still having that complaint or it becomes more prominent where they're saying, you know, it started off as once a month and now I'm feeling every two weeks, it feels like it's slipping in and out. 
that may be something to, to lead me towards potential early revision. What are your thoughts, Brad? Patient maybe early on says, I feel like I don't trust the shoulder. Are you immobilizing them or not? Um, I don't think I would be immobilizing them, no. I think I too would probably try to slow play that a little bit. See, give a little more time to try to figure out what's going on, follow them more closely. I think if they were really convinced and I couldn't find any other reason for them to necessarily have instability, that's somebody I'd probably take uh, to the operating room prepared to revise. But before I opened anything up, I would do an exam under anesthesia and see how we are, how the implant does under fluoroscopy and see if we can create any liftoff or subtle impingement that's causing instability before I open them up. I think if I found nothing, I would not open them up though. All right, let's talk about something that I think comes up not too frequently, but it's tricky when it does, and that's deltoid insertional tendonitis. Have you guys seen this? And if so, how do you manage this uh, for your patients? Brad, let's start with you on this one. So I have seen that. Um, I find it more commonly in more skinny and frail women where you put a reverse in and kind of more tension, essentially. Those, I try to kick the can down the road a while, let the soft tissues kind of adapt to their new location. One thing I found helpful is iontophoresis as directed by the therapist to try to kind of calm down some of that inflammation in the area. And also Voltaren gel is one of the other things I recommend for them. And Derek, how about you? And have you ever seen this not go away or typically is it pretty predictable with some of those modalities? So I've done the same thing as Brad. I've used more topical anti-inflammatories in that case. And I think this is the key on this one is to kind of wait it out. I think that there's some length tension relationship that maybe the deltoid has to acclimate to during the first 12 months. So I feel like I've seen that kind of deltoid insertional pain um, that may be there at month six that's not there at month 12 or 18. So not something I think I've seen long term for those patients, but in the short term, it could be an issue for them. But if you ride that one out, I see in my experience, at least it seems to resolve over time. And I also think I, we see it in the conjoint tendon as well. We talked about impingement earlier, but lengthening of the conjoint can also cause soft tissue pain anteriorly due to similar to the deltoid insertional pain. Yeah, my partner here at the university described a, a strap release for conjoint tendonitis. Do, does this have any role in either of your practices? Brad, have you, have you done this before? Does it work? I've not done that either as a revision technique or in the case of a primary, if I think it's too tight. I would consider actually Botoxing them post-op if they were having a lot of conjoint tendon pain that I didn't think was due to impingement and I thought was due to lengthening. What about you, Derek? I've not, and I'm aware of, you know, Bob Tashon's talked about that, your partner, Peter, and he's had some good success with that. And, you know, and I'm, I do see a fair amount, I feel, of like anterior shoulder pain. There have been some conjoint tendons that I've injected over the years that have kind of I think settled down. Uh, I'm not sure if it was injection or just time that, that led to that, but I think there might be a role if they're incredibly tight anteriorly in that conjoint tendon with some stretching and stress reaction there for release. And I think Bob's had good experience with that. Yeah, I've definitely done that in the, in the right patient. I think it's a, it can, it, it can be a huge advantage for that patient in terms of pain relief. Um, and it's a relatively simple thing to do. Um, so it's interesting to hear. I wonder, I've wondered sometimes, especially for, for you, Derek, using a more lateralized component, if maybe you don't see it as frequently as someone maybe with a more traditional Cremant, or maybe not, I don't know. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I would see it more anteriorly, it was more of the impingement of the on-growth surface, not so much a lengthening, but especially in females um, with, with an oversized implant, um, I would see a lot of abrasion of the ingrowth surface on the backside of the conjoint tendon. One of the things that's been nice about some of the companies coming out with a smaller diameter humeral component, if you inlay that, you don't have that much of an issue. So I've seen that a lot of my conjoint things go away in my female patients with a more properly sized humeral component that was a little smaller that fit within their metaphyseal cut. Um, and so that's where I've seen it with a lateralized implant, uh, not so much with more lengthening issues. I don't think I've seen in the conjoint. And have every of you, have either ever done or seen a patient with a, a release of the deltoid kind of down near the insertion? Does that work? It's something that's not frequently described. I have not seen that. Brad? Or I have not done that. Yeah, I know of some surgeons that have done that. Uh, Howard Routman's talked about doing a deltoid recession in a couple of his patients that just had severe, severe pain. They couldn't figure out any other issues. They thought it was markedly overlengthened. And I think just in the, a couple of those very specialized cases, Howard's had some good relief with that as a kind of last resort bailout to try to take some of the tension off the deltoid. Uh, so I think that has been described. I'd be so concerned if you did that, that, um, you know, like what, what if the deltoid doesn't have the same power anymore? Certainly we've seen that when the chromium fractures on the other end, you know, and then the patient can't lift their arm anymore because that's all that's really powering the arm often after reverse shoulder shock blast, especially in a, rotator cuff arthropathy case. Let's talk a little bit about nerve entrapment. Now, I um, I think that this is something that occurs and that maybe is seeing us more than we're seeing it. So I wanted to ask about, have you guys seen suprascapular, quadrilateral space, thoracic outlet? Do these things happen? Have you ever diagnosed them? What have you done about them? Thoughts, Brad? I have seen it after one of my anatomic that I've done where I've gone back and scoped it and released the suprascapular nerve that he developed EMG positive compression of it that didn't show up kind of until about a year later, but I have not seen it with the reverse, but, but I certainly think that could be a source of pain. And if it was something I was thinking about, it's where I would use some of our pain specialists here and have them do diagnostic injections to try to find that. Same thing for kind of vague posterior pain, looking at kind of quadrilateral space area. So Peter, I have two patients that I can think of that with the superior screw, I think in one, and maybe the way the base plate was dialed, the posterior superior screw that was long, that were sent to us, that clearly had that screw irritating the suprascapular nerve. And we did a diagnostic injection and it alleviated their pain. I sent them to the interventional pain specialist and they did ablation of their suprascapular nerve um, and their pain went away. So clearly the screw I think was irritating the nerve. Obviously I was hoping not to have to take the patient back, revise them and remove that screw. And so with a simple interventional pain uh, procedure of an ablation it seemed to really help them. So I think I've seen where the hardware, specifically the superior screws through the base plate can sometimes irritate and cause post-operative pain with the suprascapular nerve. Now tell us about, um, they ablated just the articular branches of the nerve because and a lot of those patients, you know, the infraspinatus is still helping you. Was the thought that maybe, oh, this patient is always the teres minor is firing anyway? Correct. It was more so that their teres was intact. If the infra wasn't, who really cares? And try to get rid of their mm -hmm. pain because it was kind of a, someone was really struggling for a period of months and we were looking for answers and had some suspicions with that screw. I've had no two patients develop kind of posterior pain that responded very well to a quadrilateral space injection. And the pain went away and never came back. And I 
still don't understand exactly how that happened. I don't know if that has to do with the section of the nerve intraoperatively than scar tissue that forms, but I've, I've always wondered if I'm the only one who's seen it or not. It sounds like you guys have both seen kind of some nerve entrapments and have looked into those things with guided injections, so I think it's probably absolutely the right way to go. Yeah, I think that's one of the diagnoses of exclusion. You know, when you're scratching your head, everything else looks okay. You can't find anything and the patient, you know, keeps coming back. I think you do your due diligence and, you know, look at the nerves that can potentially cause pain. And if EMGs are normal, um, I think diagnostic injections are absolutely the next way to go. All right, let's get to the question that probably every one of our listeners wants to hear the most from the both of you with your combined experience. When you have patients that have continued pain and you've done the entire workup, CT scan, infection workup, checking for the nerves, checking for everything, and you don't have a source, what are you doing? How are you approaching this conversation? Well, Derek, think... let's start. Or... Okay. Go ahead, Derek, <laughs> you go. Yeah, right. I was hoping you'd jump on this grenade ahead of me. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this is the toughest case, Rachel, and we and we see these, you know, where you've worked up their cervical spine, you've done their infection workup, you've got a CT, the implants look good, nothing's really adding up. Um, you know, in my experience, this is akin to a total knee patient that we know can have perfect x-rays, it just still has knee pain after a well-done total knee arthroplasty. So I think there is some subset of patients that undergo reverse uh, arthroplasty for the correct indications and just still have this generalized, vague, nonspecific pain that may be throughout the shoulder uh, and the deltoid. And so a difficult conversation where I tell the patients that, you know, a lot of the published data can show that upwards of 12 to 24 months, it may take for the shoulder to kind of fully stabilize after this. So I really tell them to wait this out. And I will even see them at 18 or 24 months, even ones that were referred into me that I did not do just to kind of make them feel like we're following them along. And at the end of that period of time, uh, it is a difficult kind of conversation, but sometimes it just is what it is. And you tell them, We've done the appropriate workup. I don't see any mechanical causes uh, for your discomfort, and it just may be something they're going to have to live with. Um, difficult conversation, but definitely one that if you do enough of these, you're going to have a couple of your own and something you'll probably see in second opinion as well. Brad, how about you? Any other thoughts or any other way to approach this or pretty similar? No, it's pretty I love similar. that long pause. Brad doesn't want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> the only other thing that I kind of add on, like my absolute last test, last resort is, you know, unexplained. But if everything else is truly negative, I will take them to the operating room and scope them and just take biopsies for culture to see if there's a low grade, you know, C. acnes infection, not spiking any markers, not causing any loosening that's obvious. And send them off for 14 days. If it grows something, I'm, I'm more than willing to revise them if they're negative. And then I say, listen, we've, we've gone as far as we can. I don't see anything that I can definitively change that will make your pain better at this point. And I, I tell them, sometimes these things do just take time. You may have some subtle loosening. You may have something that if we check you again in a few years, it may become more obvious. Now, when you're, when you're doing that arthroscopy, are there instances where you've seen something else that's like where you've seen, oh, there's a piece of cement trap somewhere, or there's some sort of reactive synovitis, or have you, have there have been, like you described as a diagnostic arthroscopy, are there other things you've seen that have been helpful, or is it really just the biopsy that's been helpful? I haven't spent a ton of time doing complete synovectomies and things like that in the setting of a reverse or a painful reverse. I mean, my primary goal is to get in there 
get the soft tissue biopsies as efficiently as efficiently as I can. I have kind of released the rotator interval to try to get a more external rotation in cases that are stiff, but I'm not trying to go into the infraxillary recess or anything like that to look for other things necessarily. And you mentioned earlier that you're sometimes doing an examination under fluoroscopy, which I've never, I've never heard anyone say that before. I'm fascinated to hear like, so where do you position the machine? Is there a specific range of motion you put the shoulder through? I mean, is it like, do you bring them up in abduction external rotation? Is there an internal rotation? Tell, tell us about that. Oh, you're going to make me relive the most painful case of my career so far. So <laughs> I had a, a lady who had a tumor prosthesis that dislocated. And so we were going to take her in for closed reduction, which we did. And I wanted to know kind of where she was impinging to decide if I should open up and revise her versus leave it as a closed reduction. Um, so it would be similar to somebody that was describing instability that couldn't prove it. So I would take them through my normal post-op motion, essentially elbow at the side, externally rotate, and then 30 degrees abduction, 30 degrees external rotation, 60, 60, 90, 90. I check for con or excuse me, lesser tuberosity impinging on the coracoid, same thing, greater tuberosity on a chromium, max extension external rotation, and then kind of just sulcus to see if I can how if I can just truly dislocate them, pulling them axially with a little bit of a lateral force. Um in that worst case, I ended up fracturing distally. It was a very, very frail old lady. But for the subtle instability, those are the things that I would check just to see if I could reproduce or get a sense that it's truly unstable with them relaxed that would give me more confidence about going in and being able to fix their subjective instability problem. I'm sorry to make you relive that. That sounds like just hearing you describe it, it sounds like such a bad day. Um. Derek, are you doing this too? Is there a specific, I, is this, maybe this is something everyone else is doing that I didn't know about. No, I, I have never done that. And after hearing Brad's story, I don't think I ever will. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, not, not, a, not something I've done um, in my practice to date. Yeah, that's the one well, though there anything that, else you, that's the one where you're going to go in and operating them. That's my last ditch effort to not open them up and say, listen, there's nothing else I can find here before we bite the bullet and go revise them. Now, Derek, is there anything else you've found in your practice that we haven't covered? Something else where you said, I, I see, I see this all the time and it's not described and I wish other people knew about it. I mean, I just think the, the most important thing is, you know, for me, we have these discussions about painful reverse. But, you know, when you go through this differential, we mentioned some esoteric things, but more importantly, I think number one, number two, and number three currently on my differential are a chromial fracture, a chromial fracture, a chromial fracture. And so, you know, in my office, we have a very low threshold when a patient calls in and says that they're having some increasing pain to stop any physical therapy, get them in immediately to be seen. Because as you referenced earlier, Peter, I think the way you lose with a painful RSA is, is the missed chromial fracture that displaces and once that shifts and you lose your deltoid tension, um, you know, it can sometimes be irrecoverable. So I think we talk about some of these more esoteric things, but I think really understand that we have a, a problem. It's a 4% incidence with these acromial fractures. It's a real number. If you're a high volume reverse surgeon, you're going to see a lot of these. And so trying to catch them before they displays, making sure your clinical staff and your therapists, if you use them, are aware of what that indicates when they start to complain of some posterior lateral shoulder pain 
is critical. What about you, Brad? Anything we missed? No, I think we've done a fairly extensive job kind of covering it. I think these are the some of the most difficult patients in clinic. And I think these patients require the most time in clinic. Um, you really have to take a step back, especially when there are ones that are coming in that you did not necessarily do the primary. I think you really need to take the time with these people in clinic, go through their entire course, their recovery, because a lot of the details you may be able to tease out in the history and they certainly slow down my clinic for sure. But these are the ones where you really have to put in the time up front, direct your tests afterwards to kind of try to help them figure out what's causing the pain and hopefully fix the problem. I want to thank both of you guys for spending a little bit of time with us. Um, I know this is a, it's a challenging topic and both of you, um, you guys were awesome. I mean, this was a great display of clinical knowledge. It's a, um, I don't, I don't want the listeners to think, I think for both of you, this is probably an uncommon thing with your own patients, but um, I know both of you are such uh, high volume and well-respected surgeons. You probably see plenty of referrals from outside. So I knew you guys would be great for this. And I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Peter. Yes. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you both very much for spending time with us and enlightening our listeners with your wealth of experience and knowledge. And that's really all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, we want to thank our guests for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there. Please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.